Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Actually, my name comes from an Italian wine, by the way, which is called Gaia, of course. Thinking of Corriere della Sera, um, I've been living in the region now for three years. <laughs> that was pretty close. Um, I've been living in the region for three years, and obviously I cover the Middle East. And I always had in my head the idea that my first big article as a freelancer for Corriere della Sera would be written in the Middle East, at the front line, or doing some other great reporting. And actually, the first story I wrote was from my hometown in Sardinia, a little remote, sleepy island in the middle of the Mediterranean, sitting on my bed with my laptop. And it was actually my mom who gave me <laughs> the hint for the idea. Um, it was a story on Sofix. Uh, for those of you who aren't into arms trade dealing, it's the biggest thing you should ever go to. <laughs> Happens every two years, and it's in Amman, Jordan. And so my mother had read about it, and she thought, you know, this is really interesting. Why don't you pitch it? So the first story that I wrote for Corriere de la Sera was on a tip from my mom sitting on my bed in Sardinia. And for everyone who's ever written or published, I think you always remember that moment when you finally publish in something that someone actually knows. And Corriere de la Sera is one of our two leading national papers. So that was, that was quite a moment. Um, but the funny thing in this, and this is where it ties into online reporting versus real life. So I had basically put in three hours of my work with my mom's great tips, and I'd gotten published. But what had happened a year before um, an Italian aid worker named Rossella Urru had been kidnapped in a town south of Tinduf in Algeria. It was her and two other Spanish aid workers who had been taken in um, October of 2011. And I was very touched by this um, because she was a woman, because she came from my island. And I was reading for a few months, so you know, all the clips about her story, her life. Um, and one of the things that I noticed was this tendency, it became a big, big national story, whereas the two poor Spanish guys were more or less ignored in Spain, the Rosella Uru issue um, really became national. Everybody in the country, in Italy, knew about it, and there was a lot of lobbying, and there was a lot of articles and press about it. And um, because I came from there, I started following the case, and I, I realized that it was um, some of the reporting that was being done was um, almost an attempt to make her into some kind of hero or martyr. Uh, some of it, you know, you usually have, you have a standard debate in these cases, which is, oh, another, excuse my language, another idiot who heads off for these faraway places, knows nothing, and then Italy has to bail them out and pay the check. You have usually that side of the equation, then you have the other side of the equation, where you, tend to make the person sort of a hero, superhuman. And this is not, in, in, you know, from my perspective, a way of detracting, but I think we should always try to keep the people human. You know, it's, it's their job. You know, they go there because usually, or hopefully in most cases, they are trained. They take risks. They're aware of it, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so I was finding that a lot of reporting was, was really in, in one way or the other. There was no middle line or not a lot of it. But I also started realizing that most of the reporting was not coming from Algeria. Actually, until I went and another 
unknown journalist like myself, another freelancer. No one had actually, from Italy, set foot in Algeria. So I decided to go. And I used the internet to help me because I was trying, <laughs> I was trying to look for some kind of cover because I didn't have a piece commissioned. No one had decided to buy anything from me. I had nothing to offer for the moment. And there was this group of people that was going to do a marathon in the Sahara right around the area. So I thought, that's great. You know, I'll use them as cover and I'll you know, kind of sort of piggyback with them. And I did, so I contacted them on internet, and actually they ended up giving me the context for a Sahrawi. Just to give you a little bit of, of context to the story, Rossella Uru was this aid worker working in a Sahrawi camp. Now the Sahrawi come from um, the contested area uh, south of Morocco, and there's many, many camps south of Tindouf in Algeria. And it's um, many, many children, um, old people. It's, it's, it's quite a scene because it's in the middle of nowhere, of the desert. So I decided to go and find out for myself if there was material that hadn't been covered and a way to make Rosella Uru become more human, more of a person. I contacted her parents, her brothers. And in my mind, my first objective was anything I publish I first want the parents to, make, to be okay with what I'm gonna write about because she's still in captivity, she's still being held. It was never about how do I make this story sensational. It was always about are they okay with me saying all these things, maybe I'm divulging something that I shouldn't be saying. Anyway, so I decided to go and um, I went with the, um, the Sahrawi runners, sorry, the Sahara runners um, it was February. Uh, we went on the plane together. We went to Algiers from, well, Sardinia, Rome, Rome, Algiers. And I, I don't want to offend anyone if there's anyone here who comes from Algiers, but that has got to be one of the most god-awful airports I have ever seen with the worst food ever. Pizza with pineapple, the most disgusting thing I have ever eaten. Anyway, I had gotten very into the story, really into the story, because she was from my island and speaking to her parents. It was months that I was researching it. So we make the final stop, and we basically have to put our bags on the plane. For security reasons, we actually have to put them ourselves on the plane. And we land in Tindouf, which is a town very much south, and it's a military airport. At this point, it's like 3 o'clock at night. I had started traveling at 6 a.m. I'm exhausted, but I'm also super excited because there's, you know, I'm finally here. And there's a long caravan of jeeps, and these are the Saharawi, the Polisario fighters, who are actually escorting us. And there's this long, long column to go towards the Saharawi camps where we're going to sleep. And I have to say at that point the adrenaline woke me up because I can't believe I'm here. And it's the middle of the night, and I'm driving in the desert, and you know, there's Kalashnikovs. It was, it was all very new for me. So we finally get to the place where we're sleeping, and it's me and a few of these crazy runners, um, and um, God knows what, what they were thinking about me. Um, but in any case, so, you know, it's a big room, and each one sort of gets a corner, um, and, you know, we sleep in our sleeping bags, so I was sleeping with another four people, and in the middle of the night, I think I had, this is probably an example of what not to do, you get too close to the, the story. Um, so I had a dream, that I was being kidnapped, that someone, because the girl had been kidnapped, um, that someone was entering our room to kidnap me. 
And so I woke up, I, I started screaming, mama, mama, and I woke everyone else up. And they must have thought, like, this little novice idiot, what is she doing here? It was very, very embarrassing. But anyway, by the end of the trip, I stayed there about two weeks. I was able to get a lot of material um, that had actually never arrived to Italy because no one had actually made the effort to go there. Now, why the editors didn't think it was necessary, that I don't know. Um, but the interesting thing is it was, it was a top story. The top journalists in Italy were writing about this. Um, so anyway, one of the footage that I brought back was um, through the Sahrawi TV, because they had gone the day after, the right morning after she'd been kidnapped. Um, there was still blood on the floor from the Spanish guy, who, by the way, ended up being her husband when they were released. Um, they got married. And um, he basically put up a fight. And so there was all the blood uh, on, on the doorsteps. So I brought that footage back. And I thought, again, thinking of the parents, I didn't show that footage immediately. And I had it vetted first with the brother. And I wanted them to, um, to tell me, are you OK with me showing it to them? Because uh, I thought that might, also, you know, that might be also something that a parent doesn't want to see. Um, but anyway, that's some of the footage that I brought back. And I also brought back um, other footage from Rosel Lauru giving a speech uh, that was later aired um, on Corriere della Sera on their website. Um, all in all, that was a fantastic, for me, uh, fantastic experience uh, because I learned more about her as a human being, not the idealized version. Um, I was able to speak to the workers that she was working with every day, the women that she was training, you know, get the little stories that, that make her human. Uh, the fact that she had the allergy on her hands and so that she'd always put gloves on and people initially thought she was a snob, but it wasn't that. Um, just a lot of things that make a person, you know, they make us us. Um, and so when I left, I had a lot of material and I was sure that I would be published. Of course, I was going to be published. And actually, something very funny happened. Um, the day that I returned, um, there was, well, it's not funny at all, actually. There was, um, Al Jazeera circulated a news. It seemed as if she had been released. But it was, we never really understood what had happened, but probably something went wrong in the negotiations, because usually Al Jazeera is right despite the debate about the channel now. Um, the sources are usually good with, with stuff like that. But anyway, so there was a few hours when we all fought. When I landed in Rome, I landed to about 40 messages on my phone saying, what did you do? They just released her. I was like, well, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I was just there, just trying to find out what was happening. Um, in the end, of course, unfortunately, she wasn't released then. It would be another three or four months. Um, but what happened in Rome, which is really bizarre, I stayed two days in Rome before flying back down to my remote little island. And I was still dressed, you know, in the khaki clothes, and, you know, I was still rather not looking very unkempt. Um, and one of our really big um, journalists in Italy, uh, Rico Mentana, walks right by me. And I had never seen him just on television. First of all, I was like, God, he's short. Uh, and. Um, but anyway, so I thought, okay, this is, you know, this is, this, there's a reason for this. It's happening now, and I've just come back, and I look weird, and, you know, it's a great occasion. So I didn't know how to go about it, so he kept on walking, and so I started walking, following him. But, you know, obviously, I wasn't doing a very good job, so I finally caught up with him at the red light, 
and I introduced myself and I said, hey, I'm really sorry, you know, my name is Guy Pellegrini, and he's like, you have been following me for about 300 meters, what do you want? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, look, you know, I'm dressed like this because I just came from Algeria and I was researching about Ursula Urru, what do you think, you know, what do you think about the negotiations? That was a very weird interaction. He was just looking at me like, I don't know. <laughs> um, nice to meet you, I have to go. So that was the, my meeting with Enrico Mantana. Anyway, um, but aside from that, I was, I was disappointed that all the material that I had collected, I was not able to place. And this is you know, sort of a note, a grievance that many of us freelancers and many upcoming journalists have, that so many of us who are doing the legwork and putting in the extra effort, not to mention our own money, um, it's so hard at times um, to get past the stage because the big stories are sort of owned by, you know, the people that have been there for 30 years, who are maybe sitting in Milan writing a story, making a lot of mistakes. Um, and I'm not sure how the editorial world or the journalist world is going to ever change, or at least in Italy with that. But there certainly is a need for change or for that to find a better way to work together so that neither of the two feels threatened, but there's a better cooperation. Um, let me go back to another, th another story, and with that I will close. Let me know if I'm okay with time. Um, Gaza, going back to Gaza. So Gaza was my first experience living in the Middle East. And uh, I wasn't a journalist. Uh, I was uh, working for the UN, as was mentioned. And um, this crippled me in many respects, or I felt choked by it because I wanted to report. I wanted to interview everyone. I wanted to go everywhere, and, and I couldn't. But um, towards the end of my stay, that specific year, it was 2013, um, Basically, Hamas, uh, in, in doing an interesting, actually, PR stunt, they uh, decided to get a young girl to be their English spokesperson. Her name is Isra. And before leaving, I absolutely wanted to connect with her to be able to interview her later. And a brief note to this. In the whole time that I had been there, I had read before going to Gaza about a journalist, also a female, just coincidence there, uh, who's called Asma al-Ghul. And for anyone who really closely follows Gaza, Asma is quite known because of all her anti-Hamas articles. But, you know, she still lives in Gaza, but at this point she's so known that Hamas sort of keeps her there. And she's originally from Rafa, even though she lives in, in Gaza City. And we became close friends. And um, she's a lovely girl. She used to give me all the DVDs when I couldn't go out and just... I met her children, her family. Um, I actually spent, I was in Gaza for the first week of the conflict in 2014, and then my contract ended and I left. And the night before leaving, I spent it with her having dinner and with her family. Um, and unfortunately, during the course of that summer, um, her father's family on his side in Rafa was completely wiped out. His, her uncle and all the children were killed. Um, but the reason I'm mentioning Asma is related to, to Isra. So Isra is the new spokesperson in English for Hamas. I finally get to meet her. It took me like a month because I had to be very careful not to create this whole conflict of interest with the fact that I was working for the UN and I wasn't going to interview her. I just wanted to meet her. It was like 
I was thinking about her for days and the way to meet her that wasn't direct. And I mean, it was like a whole thing working on internet with connections and Twitter and anyway. So I finally meet her and um, I wrote an article about her after. So I, I told Asma the night before leaving, I was like, you know, I finally was able to get in touch with this person. And she's like, oh, Isra, of course. Why didn't you ask me? I know her so well. She's a good friend. And I was like, what are you talking about? You're sitting on opposite sides of the thing. She's like, sure, but we're both from Rafa. We grew up together. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because for, my, for me, my takeaway from this was if I related to my experience, just human experience in Italy or any other country that we're from, at the end of the day, sure, the interactions are different from country to country. You have to be aware of, of many things, particularly in a reality such as Lebanon. But at some point, just basic common sense, I guess for certain things, works the same way in, in many places. And it would have made a lot more sense for me, since I knew that they were both from the same place, to ask her, by any chance, do you, do you know where do you interact, instead of going in this whole roundabout way. But um, let me leave you with um, just my closing sentence, if I can remember it, I tried to memorize it. Um, it's actually a quote from an American senator, Democrat, no, 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 nothing against Republicans. It's just he happens to be Democrat. He's dead now, by the way. It's uh, Patrick Moynihan. And during the course of a debate, Patrick Moynihan said, um, you're entitled to your own opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. So the way that I try to use, and I think that we all try to use the online, is to have those two realities work together. I think it's, they're indispensable. Thank you very much, and I'd like to thank Maya and Hugo and Eric. They've briefed me wonderfully, and thank you for inviting me, and thank you for listening. Thank you. That was excellent. Um,